And here we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 this morning, if you want to turn um, there now. And, and to remind us, uh, just last week we heard Jesus' letters to the churches, right? Um, letters that were written, some, some of the churches were stronger, some were weaker, uh, but they were all called to be conquerors. All called that in the midst of the suffering, the persecution, the adversity uh, that they might be experiencing, they were called to endure, endure as faithful uh, believers. Uh, This morning as we're going to move into another vision that John has in chapter 4, it might seem very disconnected. But in fact, what I hope we see is that this is precisely what the church and what the church today needs, a vision of our great God and who he really is. Now, a couple of words before we dive into our text this morning. First is with regards timing. Um, In verse 1, we're going to see the phrase, after this, and uh, then we're going to also see that phrase, what must take place after this? Um, The concern here is not so much chronology, in other words, uh, putting it in time and history, and somehow this comes after Revelation 1 through 3, Uh, but instead, remember what Peter and I have talked about the last few weeks. That when we hear that language must take place after this, it's, it's borrowing from Daniel and it really means all that takes place in what we call these last days. These last days that started with Jesus' first coming and that continue all the way through to today as we um, try to, as we live out our lives uh, today. Second thing I want us to notice, and I want you to notice this in particular as I read. Um, whenever there's repetition, usually that means something's important. Okay, this morning in our text, we're going to hear a lot of repetition. I could leave it to you to figure out, but it's probably right there in front of you, and it's probably even the title there in front of your Bible. Um, The throne is going to be mentioned over and over again, 12 times in 11 verses. That should tell us that the throne is quite important, and in fact, it's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's look at the text now. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse, voice, uh, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne 
saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you speak to us through your word? I feel incompetent (laughs) this morning to even begin to describe the glories that we've just read. But, Father, that is the task before us. Help us to see your glory this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I watched through uh, that Netflix series, The Crown. Uh, Maybe some of you have seen it. And there's actually one episode that's entirely dedicated, now dedicated in the worst way, to a guy named Michael Fagan. Now, Michael Fagan is famous for having broken into Buckingham Palace on two different occasions. Um, On the second occasion, he actually made it all the way into the queen's bedroom where she was asleep. Um, That's a pretty big deal. He ended up arrested, of course, but there was actually a first occasion. If that wasn't bad enough, on the first occasion, he kind of was able to go through the palace and he was able to get out without anybody catching him. And on this first occasion, he made it all the way to the throne room there in Beckingham Palace. This is what he said. He said, I was loving it. It was like Goldilocks and the three bears. I tried one throne, and it was too soft. So I was having a laugh to myself because there's another one right there next to it. So I tried another. And he demonstrates how he reclined on the chair to view the queen's artwork. Now, I don't think any of us in here are British this morning, and we aren't quite used to that pomp and circumstance. Maybe you saw it with the queen's funeral recently. But I think at the same time when we hear what he did, there's something almost sacrilegious about it, like something incredibly disrespectful. Yes, breaking into Buckingham Palace, that's pretty bad. But sitting on the throne, the throne is supposed to be something special, right? A special seat of honor that that only royalty is to sit on, reserved for one individual. This morning, we, of course, we, we see the throne before us in our passage, right? And this throne, that, that throne in Buckingham Palace doesn't even, it pales in comparison. It's hard to even compare the two when we begin to really think about it. But how much honor is due at that throne? And in particular, to the one who is seated on the throne. In our passage, Jesus bids John to come and enter in, to enter into God's throne room. In verse 2, we see that he is in the spirit. That is, he's, he's having another vision like he did in chapters 1 through 3. And as we see through John's eyes, I want to make sure we get something right. What we are going to see here, we're going to see God's throne room. But remember, this isn't a, this isn't a photograph, Okay? Photograph, you know, you can see all the details of something and you can zoom in super close. This isn't meant to be a photograph. It's something maybe commentators kind of talk of it often more as like an impressionist piece of art. You know, like you can see the landscape, right? But the details, if you zoom in too close, it's, it's going to lose its, its clarity as to, to what it is. John is painting us a big picture of what this throne room looks like. Verse 2, we see, behold... A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In verse 3, we're given this 
description of a dazzling appearance, and it's, it's kind of strange because we, we read about these precious gemstones, jasper, carnelian, emerald, and that's what he looks like? like, like that, that, that's kind of our, our, our impression, and, and I think, again, we've got to remember this isn't meant to be a photograph. What I think we see is that these stones just indicate the radiance of God's glory. In a sense, they, they radiate, they reflect God's glory. It's, it's almost as though John's saying that, that, that they even intensify God's glory, as if that were possible. John, I think, is looking at the one seated on the throne. It cannot be put into words. There is no way to describe it. And so he tells us it's like Jasper and Carnelian. And there around the throne, a rainbow, like an, like an emerald. The rainbow here, a, a picture of God's glory. Ezekiel sees a vision of God with a rainbow in Ezekiel 1, where actually a lot of, of Revelation 4 comes from Ezekiel 1. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. The, the, the rainbow there in Ezekiel and here for us this morning, it proclaims God's incredible glory. But we also know that it proclaims more than that, right? We know the reason for that first rainbow. After the flood, when God hangs his bow in the sky and he says, I'm never going to war against the earth like that again. Never again will the rain come down like that. Never again will I flood the earth. It's a picture of God's incredible mercy. So the rainbow, this wonderful picture of his glory and of his mercy towards sinners. And around the throne, in verse 4, there are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were, were 24 elders. And we hear that and we're like, okay, who are these? Can we get a seat on one of these thrones? Most likely, um, these elders represent the 12 patriarchs or the 12 tribes of, uh, of Israel and the 12 apostles. That is, they represent the whole of the church, Old Testament, New Testament, all of God's people. But it seems as though as we read and as we see them later in Revelation because of what they do and things that they say, that they're not like actually the patriarchs and actually the apostles. And remember, this is a picture anyway, right? But likely they're angelic beings who represent the 12 patriarchs represent the 12 apostles, reminding us of the reality that even as we're gathered here, where do our praises ascend? As we have these representatives in the throne room of God, our praises ascend all the way to God's throne room. All the way to his throne room. And from that throne in verse 5, we, we see lightning and thunder. Have you ever been close to a lightning strike? Once I was in Colorado working on a rappelling cliff and a, a thunderstorm rolled in quickly and we got down to just a safe place just down below the, the top of the cliff. I don't know how close the lightning strike was. I, it was deafening. Terrifying. To hear it roar like I never heard anything roar before. 
John enters into the throne room. He sees this dazzling striking of lightning and the roar of the thunder proclaiming the glory, the power, the majesty of the great gods, the great God whose throne room he has entered. And there before the throne are seven torches of fire. We kind of saw these back in chapter 1. They represent the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. There before the throne. And there before the throne also, verse 6, what do we see? A sea of glass. Now, we have, I think, a different view of the sea than than uh, people in the Bible's day. We, we like to go out on a day on the sea. Like, that's an enjoyable thing, right? My mom loves to go on cruises, right? In the day in which this was written, the sea could be terrifying. The sea was thought of as a place of chaos, often a source of evil, a place where sea monsters come from. And actually, we're going to see when we get to Revelation 13 that it's from the sea that the beast comes. But what do we see here? In God's throne room, the seas have been paved over. They've totally calmed. No longer a thing to be feared. No doubt because of the work of the Lamb that we're going to read about next week in chapter 5. Not to mention, it's a sea. How big must this throne room be? It's not a pond or a lake but a sea of glass, the immensity of God's throne room. And around the throne are four living creatures. This is a wild picture. Eyes all the way around, one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. Six wings apiece, I mean... Is it, is it sacrilegious to say that this is like the thing nightmares are made of in a way? Like if this thing showed up before you in the midst of the night, it would be terrifying, wouldn't it? Terrifying. But yeah, what are they doing? Can you imagine the most terrifying monster possible? He's singing holy, holy, holy. These these four living creatures probably represent all of animate life, all living life as, as, as the creation itself can't help but proclaim the glory, the glory of the one who is seated on the throne. Now, have you begun to see the picture a bit? Do you see what is at the center of this all? Everything that we've talked about, it's all recorded with its position in comparison with the throne, around the throne, at the throne. Everything, it's, it's all about what? The throne. The throne that is at the center. And ultimately the one who is seated upon the throne And here we must understand the main point, not to decipher these beasts, these creatures, or the the, the elders. But what does this throne represent? It represents God's complete and total sovereignty. Total control. 
all power and all authority. I mentioned watching through the queen, or not the queen, the, the crown, right? And not that I didn't in a way already know this, but it's amazing with all the pomp and circumstance surrounding her, she had no power. No power. No power. This is not the kind of monarch we're talking about. This is not the kind of sovereign as they, they, they called her. John has a very different vision of what one who's seated on a throne looks like. One who is completely sovereign, has total power, has complete authority. We use that word sovereign. Do, do you, you, I hope you do know what it means. I think I've already said it multiple times, but it, just so we're clear. But one who has, a true sovereign has all power, all control, has, has the power to completely rule all that is underneath him. And here the picture is of the one on the throne, the center of heaven and the center of the entire universe. The universe does not revolve around the earth. We found that out. The universe does not revolve around the sun. We know that. Who is at the center? But the one who is seated on the throne in the center of it all. We saw back in Ephesians 1 about his incredible power. That he, our great God, he, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the kind of power. That's the kind of strength the one who is seated on the throne has. Now for you this morning, who do you believe it is who is on the throne? Or, or, or maybe better yet for us to think of, who do you live? <laughs> who do you live as though they are on the throne? What does your life look like? Does it look as though he is ruling, as though he is reigning? Or do you place yourself on that throne? Other people in your life, the things in your life, who is seated on the throne? John is coming to churches that are struggling, churches that are going through a time of tribulation. And he's saying to them, this is exactly what you need. What you need more than anything, is the one who's on the throne. That's what you need more than anything. He says, look, I'll show you where you need to run. You need to run to the throne. He says, the door is open. Go running through the door in to the throne room itself. Run to the one who is sovereign the one who is seated on the throne because he is who we need. You see, we, we are able to, to do those things that he's calling the churches to in those letters that we heard last week. We're, we're able to conquer, we're able to overcome, we're able to persevere, we're able to endure because he is seated on the throne. Because he's ruling. Because he is reigning. And we can trust him and we can trust his plan despite the chaos that may be going on amidst us, around us, in our lives, in our hearts. He still reigns. 
even when we can't comprehend it, even when we can't understand life and why life goes as it does, he still reigns. Even if you're here this morning and, and don't know that you believe that he really reigns, even if you struggle to believe it at times, it doesn't change the fact that every moment of every day, he reigns. Do you know the one who is completely sovereign? Do you know the one who is the Lord? We all worship. We're made to be worshipers. We all worship something. What have you been worshiping this week? We're called to worship him. I mean, just think of that amazing picture of these scary, <laughs> scary creatures. Eyes all around and wings and faces. It's... And yet they worship. They worship. The point is not the elders. The point is not the creatures. What John is pointing to us is the throne. He's pointing us to the one who is seated on the throne. He's pointing us to the one who deserves all of our worship. And that's why in verse 8, what do we see those four living creatures doing? What do we see them doing day and night? They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Isaiah saw something very similar when he was given, in some ways, a similar vision in Isaiah 6. There he sees seraphim, each with six wings, and, and what are they doing? But crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of their glory. What is going on in heaven but the singing of praises to the one who is holy, to the one who is sovereign, the one who is set apart. The one who is seated on the throne who deserves all, not most, but the one who deserves all of our worship. The Holy One. The one who has always been, the one who will always be, deserves all, all of our worship. In verse 9. We see the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who, who lives forever and ever. Now, we, we read that, and you, you may see that, and you may think that what he's talking about is the holy, holy, holy that we were just talking about. It seems, though, that here, they're going into another set of praise, if you will. Evidently, they have another song, maybe, that's just not recorded here for us. Another song where they are giving him glory and honor, and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne. And then, it's almost as though the, those 24 elders, they, they, they can't take it anymore. They, they, they can't hold back any longer. When we read in verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They cast down their crowns before the throne. The, the elders, they just throw them down. They say, we, it's not about us, they say. It's not about our glory. It's about your glory. And don't forget what these 24 elders represent. They represent us. They represent the church from the beginning of creation to now. They represent the church, the redeemed of God. And I think it tells us much of how we are to live our lives and maybe particularly how we as a church should live. We, we as a church should never get too proud of who we are or what God may be doing through us. It's not about our glory. May it never be about Fairhill Church's glory. May it be about his glory. Might that be what we seek? They throw their crowns before the only one who deserves any crown. Before the one who is seated on the throne. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They sing back. They can't help but sing as well. And they say those words, and they may almost seem like throwaway words to us, because they say, oh yeah, that's of course who he is. They say our Lord and God. That phrase would have been powerful in John's day. This, the book of Revelation is likely written during the reign of Domitian. And this was the very term by which his subjects were to address him. They were to address him as their Lord and their God. I don't think it's by just happen chance that these words arrive here in the book of Revelation. John is saying something profound. As great as the Roman emperor may be, he is not like your God. As much power and authority as he may seem to have, as much sovereignty as he may seem to wield, it's nothing in comparison. The one who is seated on the throne is our Lord and our God. He is the one who deserves every bit and all of our worship. The call here is to worship our great God. Now, something we haven't addressed, and that is how is John in the throne room? How is he able to even enter in? Just as we talk about this being kind of a picture, an impressionist picture of, of what the throne room looks like. In the Old Testament, they had an impression too, right? They had the Holy of Holies. That's what it was meant to be. It was meant to symbolize the throne room of God. And of course, we know only one person was allowed to enter, and then only once a year, right? The chief priest, the high priest. How is John able to enter in to the throne room of God? We mentioned a moment ago from Isaiah 6 where we see that wonderful song, Holy, 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 being sung there. 
as well. When, when Isaiah gets a vision and is able to see the throne room of God, do you, does any, maybe you remember what Isaiah's response is. He hears the cry out of holy, holy, holy. What does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, like John, is in the throne room of God. Isaiah says, I, I, I shouldn't be here. He is holy. I am not. How can I even approach the one on the throne? And the seraphim fly down to him. They take a burning coal with tongs from the altar. They touch his lips. And they say, in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. He had to have atonement in order to, to be there, to, to be present. And, and next week we're going to see something similar. Okay, next week as we see the lamb who was slain for our sins, we even read about it in our call to worship this morning. But question for us, haven't we already seen the lamb this morning? You remember from the very first verse, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. We see Jesus here, don't we? The one speaking like a trumpet as he did in Revelation 1. John is entered in. He is able to enter in. He's ushered into the throne room. Because the high priest ushers him in. Welcomes him in. Invites him in. He's able to come in. The one who himself was the ultimate sacrifice says, John, come in. Reminded of those words from Hebrews 4. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Since we have such a great high priest. Continuing in verse 16, let us then, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The throne room is what we need. The throne room is what the churches, the seven churches that we read about last week, it's what they need, it's what our church, it's what we need today. We need to know the one who rules and reigns, who is sovereign over all, and the one who because of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, Invites us in. And he says, come in. If you're united to me, come. I bid you come in to the throne room and worship. Now, question we must all deal with today, no matter where we're at this morning. If he really is sovereign, if he really is holy, 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 He is that whether you believe it or not. Whether you live your life as though he is or not, 
He still rules and he still reigns and he still is holy, holy, holy. You can try to ignore it, but it's not going to change the facts. You can try to think, well, I'm going to be good enough in life if I, if I try hard enough. Maybe he'll let me in. But be reminded of what Isaiah says. Oh, me of unclean lips. I can't enter in. Even our, our, our best efforts are but, but filthy rags. How are we able to enter in? Not through our efforts, but through the work of the Lamb, through the work of our great high priest, the one who has passed through the heavens, the one who calls us to draw near to the throne of grace. Revelation 4. We're not given a picture of the future. We're given a picture to show us that we need not fear. We're given a picture to show us the, the, the one who is sovereign and who rules and reigns and who will accomplish everything that he has said that he will. And he has the power to do so. He will extend the bounds of his kingdom to the very ends of the earth. The gates of hell will not prevail. He rules and he reigns and we can trust him. And it's amazing, isn't it? John shouldn't have been allowed to go in. We shouldn't be allowed to enter into the throne room. But yet because of the lamb, the lamb who was slain, we're able to enter in. Because of Jesus, we're able to enter. And because of, of what our Savior Jesus Christ has done, as we gather to worship today, we do not gather just here, but we gather in the heavenly places, ushered into the throne room of our great God. Do you believe it? Our church has a shorter catechism, and it starts with a very simple question. Many of you may know it. What is the chief end of man? Another way to put it, what is man's primary purpose? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that the picture of Revelation 4? We're being ushered in. We're being welcomed in. Come. And praise your great God, glorify your God, and enjoy him forever. John Piper puts it this way. He says missions, that meaning taking the gospel to the very ends of the earth. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Yes, we're called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it's not the ultimate goal. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. John is bidding us today bidding us to enter in, to come into God's very throne room, 
welcomed in by our great high priest. And enter in and worship and praise him and give him all that he is due. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your glorious provision to us through your word. We thank you that through your word, we, while we see not perfect clarity, but we are able to see for a moment a bit of your glory. Would you help us, oh Father, to worship you? Son, would, our, would, would, would your son be so blessed by our worship as we praise him and thank him for all that he has done? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our hearts, bringing clarity more and more to your glory? We gather today around your throne to worship. We thank you because of our Savior Jesus Christ. This worship is made acceptable in your sight. Would you continue to be with us even as we sing now, as we sing to you, our great God. Pray all of this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.